Hello everyone, before I start, if you'll forgive me, I have a podcast recommendation for you all. It's called the British Food History Podcast. I recommend it to you on the rigorous selection process that I really like it, and maybe you will too. Also, it's a great and rich subject. Most of all, though, I really like the host, who is Dr Neil Buttery, and he really knows what he's talking about. He's an author, a PhD in the subject, he's got a really good blog as well, actually. But the main thing is he's an absolute and total enthusiast, and that, to me, is the heart of independent podcasting. He's doing it because he loves his subject primarily. He's a warm and lovely host. He has lots of really great guests. So Diane Perkis of The People's History of the Civil War fame, she was there, for example. She's now done The People's History Approach to Food. There's one just out on medieval food and one I absolutely loved on school meals. How I laughed at that one and cried just a little bit at the memory of the tubes in school liver. So much yuck. Anyway, it's great. Give it a go on your normal podcatcher, the British Food History Podcast with Dr. Neil Buttery. Quality sleep is essential for boosting energy, recovery, and well-being. So take your sleep to the next level with Sleep Number. With a Sleep Number smart bed, you can individualize your comfort level and enjoy a better sleep night after night. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $1,599, a saving of $300, only for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Hello everyone and welcome to the History of England, episode 179, Town Life and the New Farmers. Just very quickly to remind you that I'm part of the Agora Podcast Network now and to urge you when you're looking for a good old better casting to check out the Agora Podcast Network website. Inspiringly named, you guessed it, agorapodcastnetwork.com. This month's featured podcast is 10 American Presidents by Royfield Brown. You can find out more by going to acast.com forward slash 10 American Presidents. Now then, episode 179. Good golly, Miss Molly, have I really just spent five years of my life making podcasts on the history of England. Must be mad. Anyway, no turning back now, only a few hundred years to go. So, last week we covered some stuff about the economy, populations, but mainly towns, with a vast amount of verbiage about making cloth which bored you to tears. Even here in my shed, I can hear the sound of bored history nuts eating their livers in pain and frustration. No more about cloth making today, promise. Cross my heart and I hope to die. Instead, what we'll do today is talk about the way that towns organise and manage themselves. And we'll talk then about the countryside to boot and the new farmers who are able to change their lives through the changes that the 15th century brought. There's a general feeling, I think, that the medieval town was the route to freedom and success, that the countryside was a grey, dark, medieval place, full of feudal oppression and serfdom. 
while across the borough border, folks hopped and skipped around in the sunlight of creative self-expression. If that is the image you have in your mind, gentle listeners, put it aside. I mean, yes, there was plenty of opportunity for entrepreneurship in the towns. And in fact, that's a feature of the 15th century more than ever before. But that was a feature of the 15th century. That is to say, a feature of the 15th century rural economy as well. The other point to make is that the towns were not completely free by any means. 15th century towns were run by an elite, a small elite, an oligarchy, and run and strictly controlled for the benefit of that elite. Don't get me wrong. We're not talking about some kind of hideous dystopia or something. People were proud of their towns and keen to belong there. And through the 15th century, this civic pride and self-promotion grows in the way that would be very recognisable to the likes of Joe Chamberlain and the 19th century Birmingham. There's a publication that survives from 1478, celebrating the, quote, noble and worshipful town of Bristol. It gives the wonders of the town's foundation myth, a celebration of its liberties or privileges. It talked about the office of mayor and what an important chap he really was. The towns of England were, in a way, like their own little mini-states, nothing like to the extent of northern Italy, of course. But some of the same drivers are there. The mayor was a real role, not the honorific it tends to be now. The mayor of London, when he wasn't hiding in bed, was a figure of national influence and power. The mayor held courts. He met with the masters of the guilds, supervised the bakers and brewers, regulated the markets. Most of all, he was the representative of the leading men of the town, who were almost always the big merchants. And together with the 12 or 24 town councillors from the leading families, his job was to manage the town for the benefit of its leading men. I exaggerate for effect, of course. After all, it's not as though the leading men were sitting on a powder keg of revolutionary thought, forcing the poor citizens into a straitjacket against their will. The vast majority of the aims of the town citizens were very much the same. The hierarchy was broadly accepted and supported, and there was some recognition of the aspirations of the artisans and small-scale traders of the town for representation in town government. So there would often be a common council for this purpose. But everyone knew where the real power lay. The urban elites managed towns with a few priorities in mind. One was control, and one problem they kicked against was any other kind of independent authority that might be in the town, and usually that would be the church, who in monasteries and cathedrals could have enclaves of jurisdiction. Londoners hated the independence of Southwark, and it had to be said that Southwark took full advantage, with the Bishop of Winchester's lands in particular being used for a variety of sin, brothels and stews. Bearing in mind that the objectives of the elite were to maintain law and order and make sure their town grew and prospered, the elites, as I say, were not necessarily in conflict with their own citizens. But there were without doubt positives and negatives. For example, many towns had rules against prostitution, eavesdroppers, even gossips, would you believe. They tried to ban games such as footy and dice a couple of centuries before we all start moaning about the Puritans. They followed social policies also designed to avoid upset and mathering, 
So, they passed laws against forestalling, for example. What, I hear you say, are you talking about? Well, this was a law against the evil merchants nipping out the country and buying up all the grain, so that they could then charge higher prices. The elite didn't like this, not because they were against making loads of money or exploiting people viciously, but because in times of trouble, it could lead to riots. They wanted to be able to control the price. And so they ordained that bakers should have a responsibility to produce bread for the poor. It was expected that the poor should be able to buy cheaply the brewer's dregs and butcher's offal, which sounds lovely and kind-hearted. But the motivation was strictly control, law and order, rather than loveliness. The medieval ruler wanted order, structure, hierarchy, obedience. So the craft guilds, or fraternities as they were known at the time, are a well-known example of this. At the celebrations of Corpus Christi, one of the biggest events in the town's year, every guild had its own float, with a biblical episode related specifically to their skills. So, carpenters performed the story of Noah's Ark, smiths covered the crucifixion since they made nails, and so on. Everything ordered and in its place. More specifically in terms of order was regulation. Everywhere you look in a medieval town, there is organised regulation. So, the craft guilds were in no way independent from the governance of the town. The town authorities took a very close interest indeed in the rules of each guild. Wages were heavily regulated by the guilds in an attempt to keep down costs. Masters were forbidden to poach workers from other members of the craft. All of this was very much like the Statute of Labourers, trying to hold back the sea of economic change to set their faces against the unavoidable fact that labour was now limited. Meanwhile, unskilled workers were not allowed to associate at all. A fraternity of the unwashed was unthinkable. They would inevitably try to push up wages. So there's an example of the spurriers of Coventry getting together to fix the price of spurs, and being rapidly squished and disbanded by the town authorities. This is the obvious side of regulation and control, but there are more subtle examples. The one I particularly like is the one about clocks. Clocks start going up in towns in church towers or in purpose-built clock houses in the 15th century. That's when they start to appear. Which all again sounds lovely, decorating the town with a fab new invention. And to a degree, that is true. They were civic ornaments, expressions of civic pride. Oh, look at our delightfully fangled clock. That sort of thing. But then, listen to this, folks. Listen to this quote from Coventry in 1496, when a journeyman capper was told to, quote, come to his work at six of the clock in the morning and to leave at six of the clock at night. Quite apart from the fact that this is a long day, here is the death knell of joy and laughter, folks. Here is the start of the hamster wheel of life, of a society driven by time, rather than rising with the lark and going to bed when the candle ran out. Here is the start of the end for the analogue world, when someone could be about on time rather than early or late. The modern world, in all its hideousness, has arrived, ladies and gentlemen, has arrived Townspeople came together in other associations apart from the craft guilds, principally 
religious fraternities. In smaller towns, it could well be the religious guild that dominated the town's elite. For example, the Holy Trinity Guild in the mighty cosmopolis that is Wisbeach in the Fenlands. Membership of the guild was, in a deeply religious way, restricted to the more substantial townspeople, by which I do not mean those who'd been at the pies, but those who formed what was elsewhere described as, quote, the better and wiser part of the townspeople, i.e. more cash. The property controlled by the fraternity ran to 40 quid, which, as we know, amounts to a hill of beans in days medieval. So with that, they were able to employ a priest and a schoolmaster. They paid for the upkeep of the guild hall. They held a splendid annual dinner with minstrels, all had a great hoolie, and then the poor were allowed to eat the leftovers, the lucky things. All this paints a picture close to oppression. And certainly it was, like all things medieval, extremely hierarchical, and where everyone was expected to know their place and keep it. And so conclusions have been drawn that it was these elites that held the economy and the towns back with the straitjacket of stultifying regulation, which crushed the poor and the entrepreneur alike. Well, this would be a very harsh interpretation. Because, yes, while hierarchy was all, nothing in medieval England could operate at 100% efficiency. There was a constant running battle with butchers about their offal, for example, which indicates that the masters of the town might make the laws, but the laws were there to be broken. Sometimes it's the very officials themselves who break the rule, and do so because it makes commercial sense. So there's this lovely example of the chief ale taster presenting himself at the assize for having broken his own rules, paying the fine, and then carrying on as before. Attempts to control pay were no more effective than the statute of labourers had been in the wake of the Black Death. It was impossible to prevent artisans from creating their own fraternities in practice, and often the artisans were openly and vocally critical of the ruling elite. And then there are a number of examples of towns, particularly seigneurial towns, which had no obvious ruling council or group. By seigneurial towns, incidentally, I mean towns which, nominally at least, came under the control of a local lord or lords, and so there was no royal charter. This applies to some small towns no one has ever heard of, like Buntingford. And my apologies to the Buntings, if that's what you're called, but I've not been fortunate enough so far in my life to make your acquaintance my loss. But some pretty big places like Southwark also had very little obvious control, which as a result was a chaos, a chaos of human endeavour, and not always in a good way. So look, all of that's fine, but it's a mealy-mouthed sort of argument which says that these oligarchs made absolutely no contribution, but the good, honest and ordinary folk managed to make things work despite them. And actually that's not fair by any means either. It was the fraternities that created most of the civic amenities and services that delivered services for the community and built a sense of civic pride. The best of them had a strategy and drove it forward. A really clear example is that of Abingdon, a town constantly in competition with Wallingford downstream towards London from them. By building an extra bridge over the river, they made Abingdon much more attractive as a market and entrepot for London and set Wallingford on decline and Abingdon to growth. Meanwhile, the 15th century probably saw greater changes in the countryside than it saw in the town. 
After the Black Death, the sharper magnates would have feared something of an economic catastrophe. Given a population fall of the extent of 50%, it doesn't take a genius to guess that the grain and meat prices should fall. After all, there'd be fewer people around to eat the stuff. And meanwhile, wages would grow. Oh dear Lord, this isn't going to be fun at all. Bear in mind that as far as your commoner garden incredibly rich magnate or baron was concerned, it was one way the world was meant to be. There were meant to be things called serfs, who followed the age-old obligation to do what they were told for their lord. They were obliged to deliver defined work on the lord's domain, and only then could they see if they could scratch out a living for themselves. They were obliged to use his manor court to resolve any disputes, and would pay for the privilege. This was the way that it was, since time immemorial. In return, the lord was supposed to protect and look after his serfs, even despite the fact that they smelt faintly of dung. Except when the Earl of Warwick was trampling all over their lands with 5,000 heavily armed men, of course, which meant all bets were off. So, when the people that smelt faintly of dung started dropping like flies, and even the ones that smelt of rosewater as well, the magnets with the bigger brains might well have worried that the world would change and that the paucity of labour would give the smelly serfs more power, that prices would fall, and the magnates would have to hold off buying that extra Porsche they had their eye on, something scarcely to be born. But for twenty years after the Black Death, none of that seemed to happen. Yes, there was something of a fall of income from rents and so on, about ten percent. But given that fifty percent of their tenants and serfs were pushing up the daisies, well, that was a real win. And in Wales it looks as though landed incomes may actually have gone up slightly. Grain prices stayed high, so incomes from the lords to mainlands did pretty well. The lords and barons and magnates rubbed their hands with glee. They'd got away with it. Now, I'm sure you still have clear in your minds episodes 131 or 69, where we talked about matters economic. So, you may remember that we've talked about the glory days of high farming in the Middle Ages before the Black Death, when lords took greater and greater direct management of their estates when times were good. Weather was warm and the demand for food was driven by a population that made the coasts of England bulge slightly, when therefore they grew the size of their domain. Before I go on, let me digress briefly. I'm not sure I've ever actually described the word domain and what it means. Now, probably most of you know anyway, so sorry to bore you, but I'll be brief. But domain is spelled D-E-M-E-S-N-E. It's a French word coming from the word for mansion in Old French, meni. So, de meni, of the house, of the household. Clearly, it's pronounced totally incorrectly for any proper Anglo-Saxon, but the S is silent as a result of an ancient device to show that the vowel was long. So there you go. Anyway, domain land was the land that the Lord kept under his own direct management. Traditionally, it had been to feed the household, and often was, but maybe also to sell any surplus. The land would be worked by wage labourers, but also by his serfs, villains, cotars and so on, as part of the service they owed to their lord in return for his protection. And because he refrained from sticking a dirty great sword through their heads just for fun. So, back to high farming. 
lots of domain land, direct management of the magnates' estates, because lords could make a shed load by selling the produce of their lands. And for a while after the Black Death, this all stayed pretty much as it had been for 200 years. They'd got away with it. But in fact, they were defying gravity. After 1375, harvests improved, which does sound like a good thing, doesn't it? But that meant prices fell, and now they kept falling. So that meant no profits from the sale of grain from directly managed mainlands. Quality sleep is essential for boosting energy, recovery and well-being. So take your sleep to the next level with Sleep Number. With a Sleep Number smart bed, you can individualize your comfort level and enjoy a better sleep night after night. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $1,599, a saving of $300, only for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Then finally, and at last, wages started rising. It's not terribly clear why this hadn't happened earlier, given that 50% of your population dying would seem to indicate competition for scarce labour. But the obvious conclusion is that this wasn't a free market. Serfs could be forced to stay. The statute of labourers had had some effect. But in the 1370s and 1380s, Wages rose. In 1381, the peasantry had shown, through revolt, that they were impatient of the attempts to coerce them in the face of the unavoidable economic realities. All over the country, they were demanding and getting higher wages, because landholders knew that they had few alternatives if their peasants fled to another landholder. OK, fleeing was supposed to be against the rules of serfdom and the feudal contract and natural justice. But equally, they knew full well that starved of labour, their neighbouring landlords would welcome any new labourers with open arms and protect them. And so now, aristocrats were being squeezed from both ends, the poor puppets, and profits took a tumble. Managers of these often massive estates, whether secular or ecclesiastical, were professional businessmen, focused on maintaining income from their assets. Don't get the impression that because this was the Middle Ages, these folks didn't know what they were doing. So I'm going to give you a little example through the life of a guy called Thomas Chillenden. Thomas was a monk who'd entered the Priory of Christchurch, Canterbury in 1365. He'd studied and was a recognised expert in canon law. That's church law, by the way, rather than law of large metallic objects. Just thought I'd clarify. Anyway, onwards... Uh, Thomas was obviously a talented man and became prior around 1381 and enthusiastically started rebuilding the nave of the cathedral church, achieving what turned out to be a superb example of perpendicular architecture. Architecture, by the way, folks, is something I've really wanted to get to and failed, failed miserably, because it's a bit difficult on a podcast. It's a bit visual. But remind me sometime, I've spent far too much time in my youth looking round churches when I should have been misbehaving. Anyway, onwards. So, building of the cathedral church nave was done by 1390, but Thomas was worried. He was a great builder. He had other projects in mind. He wanted to rebuild the chapter house, for example. 
and he needed simply to make sure that the finances of the monastery were sound as well. And so he was very worried by the fallen income. So, monk he might be, but astute businessman he was also. Thomas's first strategy was to invest in towns to generate new income. He acquired houses and shops in London, in Southwark and in Canterbury. He also invested in the fabric of the monastery estates to keep them efficient, building and repairing mills for grain and fulling cloth, barns, grain stores, stables. But despite all of this, income from the domain kept falling. Thomas Chillenden knew that something had to be done, and that something was to break with the long tradition of direct management of the monastery's domain lands. For centuries now, direct management of the domain had been the best way of getting the best possible return from that essential asset of land, exercising the monastery's traditional rights as landlord to force their peasantry to perform labour services, supplemented by wage labour when needed. True, Canterbury were used to moving some of their land from direct management out to rent and then back again sometimes. But now, this was the time for something more radical. So, from 1391, Thomas Chillenden systematically transferred every single acre of Canterbury's domain lands from direct management out to farmers. Farmers who rented the land for them. Now, in this case, Chillenden didn't go the whole hog. He didn't charge a cash rent, actually. The new tenants paid for their land in kind, in grain and livestock. But the principle was the same. Chillenden was an early mover, but soon part of a movement that was carried out all over the country as landlords bowed to the inevitable and turned their domain land over tenants. Now, on this scale, this was a sharp break with tradition. There's a lovely quote from the officials of the Earl of Warwick, who reluctantly decided that a manor had to be turned over to tenants. It must be done, he said, quote, until the world is restored. Now, I suspect you are studying your MP3 player in some confusion. Maybe you have laid down your iron for a moment and are standing studying your fresh-smelling laundry with a puzzled frown. Or maybe you've sat up suddenly in bed and elbowed your partner brutally in the kidney and demanded to know what is all the fuss about. I mean, firstly, why are all these lords transferring their lands to tenants? And secondly, why are they all so worried? Doesn't sound all that earth-shattering to me. OK, so we'll do the why bit first. Essentially, by passing their lands to tenants, lords pass their risk on to someone else. They were able to set challenging cash rents and all they had to do was watch their tenants try to deal with the situation. Plus, they no longer had the cost of managing all those workers and estates and taking the risk on the sale. They still needed to manage the tenants, but that was much less costly and complicated than directly managing their lands. And finally, the income from tenants was hopefully at least predictable and reliable. So, why was this all such a worry to lords? Well, in a sense it wasn't. Employing tenant farmers was hardly new. But on this scale, it was a dramatic change. And the medieval world wasn't fond of dramatic change. More significantly, this move made a significant change in the relationship between Lord and his serfs. Let me explain. So, I've used the word serf. The word comes from the Latin word servum, for slave. 
but slave isn't an accurate word for it, a bit like zombies in Dungeons and Dragons being undead, something between alive and dead, a serf was unfree, neither a slave nor fully free. Hope you're impressed with my use of Dungeons and Dragons to illustrate something. Obviously, greatly clarifying. Anyway, the important aspects of this were that he or she, as a serf, was required to give services to their lord, like working on their land for a defined number of days a year. They were not allowed to leave the manor without their lord's permission, and therefore were limited in their ability to better themselves or take advantage of opportunities. They were required to use their lord's manor court for justice, for which they were charged a fee, and in which they were unlikely to be able to challenge their lord, of course. I know we've discussed this all before, so apologies for repeating it, but it's pretty crucial. Fine. So, when the lords were forced to farm out their domain land to their peasants as tenants, they normally had to do so in the form of a cash rent. And at the same time as this, many of those old rights went with it, or at least specifically the bond of labour service. The lord continued to hold the manor court, it's true, but nonetheless, the link of service between lord and peasant was significantly weakened. The peasants as farmers had much more independence, and they had much greater ability to negotiate, and they'd got rid of those hated labour services forever. And at the same time, wage labourers were travelling to find the best rate to pay, and with the odd exception, they got away with it, because at the end of the line was another lord who needed them. Peasants were moving to other lords to take up opportunities to become free tenants as well. And for another thing, most lords held manors all over the country. With tenant farmers in place, there was much less need for them to live for extended periods or even visit all their manors. And so many manor houses fell into disuse and even ruin, as landlords concentrated on one manor as their home. And so with that lack of contact, the link again weakened. The whole process and the scale of it constituted a seismic shift in the balance of power between lord and peasant. In this new world, the rights of the manor court assumed even greater significance as the one channel where those old servile rights found expression. They continued to be used in creating bylaws, but were still used less and less by tenants to resolve arguments with their neighbours. In the new world of tenants, the noble landholder still had work to do. They still had to manage all their tenant farmers. Without constant vigilance, rents would diminish or even disappear. So receivers, auditors and stewards collected money from reeves and bailiffs, checked accounts, held courts. A new official appeared, the surveyor, charged with assessing the value of their lands and negotiating new leases and tenancies. A new type of analysis was needed, how to minimise the losses in revenues. And I put it this way round, very deliberately. Those records are very defensive in tone, in general, it was all about preventing losses rather than great new opportunities. New forms of contracts or indentures appeared. Often, initial indentures for new tenants were quite short-term while they tried those new tenants out, but increasingly they got longer and longer later in the century, extending to things like 20 to 40 years. The nobility also worked out ingenious ways of identifying the best way of transferring all their land to tenants. So, should they be rented out in one big block, often as much as 200 to 400 acres? Or, 
was it better to split them up into smaller lots? Should they include livestock and equipment in the lease? Who was responsible for repairing the infrastructure, tenant or owner? All these things needed to be worked out and more. Anyway, the impact of all of this, or one of the impacts, was that there emerged a new and influential group, the new farmers. The word farmers, as we've said, derived from this new contract. That is, the nobility had farmed out their domain lands to them. Through the 15th century, maybe something like 20 to 25% of the agricultural land in England was handed over to these new farmers. And as a result, many of the changes in the 15th century rural economy were driven by them. The new farmers came from a number of sources from the peasantry, where local or whether they'd moved from elsewhere to take up the opportunity, from the local gentry expanding their landholding, and often from the towns, where merchants saw an opportunity partly for an investment, but also maybe to buy into the landholding classes. For the gentry, i.e. noble and affluent families below the level of barons and magnates, there was less of a challenge in taking up these new lands. Often merchants would anyway sublet their land to someone who knew what they were doing. But for the peasantry, it might mean a significant change. Let me give you another brief example by talking about a man called John Hicks. Near the end of the 14th century, John was a serf, a peasant, working the land in Wiltshire. He worked a single traditional yard land of 30 acres. And then, in the first years of the 15th century, John was able to take over the lease for a 200-acre domain in his manor. For John, this was a transformation in his life and his status and his wealth. But it must have been a pretty scary proposition as well. Now, he had some advantages, because he and his family had lived there for generations, and so he knew the land. But now, he had to adjust to all the problems of large-scale farming. Raising capital, investing in equipment, buildings and livestock, hiring and managing many employees, selling and marketing a great quantity of produce. John succeeded, and later in his life he took over even more land. And in general, it seems that despite initial caution by landowners, most peasants did make the change and did succeed. The new farmers had a good negotiating position. If the landowner didn't take them on, they simply might not find anybody else. And then, rather than getting some rent and keep some of their income, they might be stuck with a domain they couldn't manage, running to rack and possibly even ruin. The new farmers used this power. They negotiated and they drove a hard bargain and they must have loved sticking it to the magnates. To give you yet another example, good lord, what a week for examples, let me take you to a man called Nicholas Points in Bybury, Gloucestershire. The Bishop of Worcester owned this land, and his financial experts had worked out that they got just 11 shillings profit from a £6 investment in the land. So, they all agreed they had to find a tenant who would take the land on and provide some income and take on the risk of all that financial outlay. Eventually they found a man, a man called Nicholas Points, who agreed to take the land on for the rent of £6, and the Bish would have been well pleased. Nicholas turned out to be less pleased once he got to his land and found he couldn't generate much profit, and so he simply didn't pay. 
Now this put the Bish in a difficult position. He could just chuck Nicholas off the land. But then, where would he find a replacement? Would he find a replacement at all? So over the next 20 years of hard bargaining, the rent came down to £4.16 shillings, and finally all the way down to £4 flat, at which point the money started flowing again. And to give you even more examples, the villagers of Lightthorn flatly told the officials of the Earl of Warwick in 1437 that if they didn't reduce the rent, they'd leave for a neighbouring village. This worked a treat, and they got what they wanted. The result for the secular and ecclesiastical aristocracy was that for most of the 15th century they saw their income fall. In some areas, the decline was less dramatic. In Cornwall, there was another source of income in tin mining to have set the decline in agriculture, for example. But elsewhere, the fall was dramatic. Reductions of 20% were normal in southern and midland England. In the northeast of England, it was as high as a third. The nobility made cutbacks, reducing their staff, the number of their residences. But sometimes, like the Dukes of Buckingham, they got badly into debt and effectively went bankrupt. In the 1520s, the Dukes of Buckingham were forced to sell many of their manors. Smaller ecclesiastical institutions also sometimes got into debt and just disappeared. But then, somewhere around 1470, things stabilised and even in some places, began to improve. Now, it's difficult to know why. Maybe it's simply that they'd reached the bottom. The 15th century also saw a major change in land use, away from arable and grain to pasture and livestock, which we'll talk about next time. But I suppose the new farmers adjusted their approach through the century, and therefore, once they got used to the new conditions, rents gradually improved. But one of the impacts was an opportunity for the aristocracy to take on new blood, new blood particularly with money. I think I've warbled on once before that one of the features of the English aristocracy in later centuries was actually its flexibility, where in France, for example, it became very rigid, very much a closed shop. So members of the gentry who made money in the law were able to buy in, whether through buying land or through marriage. Merchants who succeeded were able to buy in through the same way. And some of the reason for that was that the upper aristocracy struggled to make ends meet, or at least to live in the manner they got used to. (laughs) No pun intended, obviously. And so they often wanted to marry money. So there we are, a good place to leave it, I hope. Next time we'll talk about the changes of land use in England. We'll talk about how the 15th century treated the gentry and the peasantry. I harbour a desire to warble on about breeds of livestock, following on from the enthusiastic response to lots of warbling about sheep and such but not sure I'll have managed that by next week. But hey, something to look forward to. I'm sure you'll agree. And meanwhile, I have some thanks to my monthly donators, Joshua, Andrea, Nancy, Brad, Dan and Stuart. And grateful thanks also to Luke, David, K.I., Griffith, Cine Pax and Roberta. So brilliant. Thanks for listening, everyone. Good luck and have a great week. Botox Cosmetic, out of botulinum toxin A, FDA approved for over 20 years. So talk to your specialist to see if Botox Cosmetic is right for you. 
For full prescribing information, including boxed warning, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. Remember to ask for Botox Cosmetic by name. To see for yourself and learn more, visit BotoxCosmetic.com. That's BotoxCosmetic.com. Spin your passion into a business with Shopify and break sales records with the world's best converting checkout. Let's hear that one more time. The world's best converting checkout. Shopify's legendary checkout makes it easier for customers to shop on your website, across social media, and everywhere in between. Now that's music to your ears. Any way you spin it, you can be a smash hit with Shopify. Start your dollar a month trial today at shopify.com slash records.